0: Did you see that Tim Dillon take on the boomers in real estate? Um, did you see that clip? You know what's funny? I didn't see the clip. I
1: listened to the podcast today and mm. I was listening because I saw the clip online, uh, and but I didn't listen to it. And I thought the only clip I heard him talking about with real estate was that like China was buying all the houses or something. But that wasn't the clip that
0: he used. That wasn't the clip that was fl- floating around. Well, that
1: Tim he, Dillon, he,
0: Tim Dillon, comedian. If we do end up using this, uh, he's obsessed yeah. with real estate. Uh, okay. He's obsessed with the the women who are at the top of real estate. And this wasn't about China. It was about how it was about how the boomers are just holding onto this thing effectively till the day they die. And his explanation was that it's not just the thing it's the thing that gives them their status and suggests that they're right because they are a fundamentally narcissistic generation i don't know if i believe that necessarily but i like this idea that they're holding on to it because it's what allows them to shit talk their millennial kids/zoomer slash Zoomer grandkids and go oh you got a house you got a house okay well then you know you got to listen to my listen to my perspective i thought that was very interesting it was a very interesting idea, true or not.
1: Yeah, I I don't think boomers are more narcissistic than like millennials or even... Uh, Gen X is a weird generation because I'm mm. in it and I, yeah you know, part of our aesthetic is not, part of the bit is to not be narcissistic, which I guess on some level is narcissism about mm. your lack of narcissism or something, but... yeah. But I, I don't find boomers to be particularly narcissistic. I, I Part of the, I just feel like everybody's mad that they're not dead yet or something. Like, what do you <laughs> want them to
0: do? <laughs> Are you supposed to hit like 75 no, and just give up all of your wealth because you're old now? Like, no, you're, don't you're, you're, you're articulating it perfectly. No, not individually. Everybody wants their mom uh, or grandmother to just live perpetually. But there is this feeling that no generation has ever hung on for this long. And there's this feeling of, it's almost like when you're watching Dick Stockton announcing the game at the end or Marv Albert towards the end and you're going, this, this is just, this is uncomfortable. It seems like something should have happened by now. Well, um, I think but it just keep- the, they're probably the first generation to live so long.
1: Yes. Right? Because the greatest gen is the greatest generation, the one before boomers is that yeah. the then imagine think about okay so think about how long boomers are holding on now the Gen X or millennial version of Hubie Brown will be like 107 and still oh, doing it's... games like JJ Reddick uh, is gonna be
0: 122 still doing games I imagine I at mean, some point and I'll you'll have to reckon with being as old as they are and. I mean, I've said when Henry Kissinger died, uh, Adam Silver's Henry Kissinger, um, yeah. it, it was it was a big moment for me, uh, not because of anything regarding Henry Kissinger, but that is one of the last people who was always old to me. There mm. are only so many of them left. Yeah. There aren't many people who were, as long as I've been aware of them, David Attenborough. Oh, it's always been there. old.
1: You mean? Has always been yeah. old, you mean?
0: Yeah. O- always been old. Noam Chomsky I yeah. mentioned when talking with Michael Moynihan about it. That's somebody who has always been an elderly man for as long as I've known about him. And we are going to run out of those people. Yeah. It just has to happen. Well, eventually. <laughs> Until we are those people, I guess, <laughs> to somebody else. Do it again! Do it again! Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars. Winners hang with winners. See Welcome to House of Strauss. We are joined by a longtime friend of the pod, Spike Eskin, co-host of The Rice of Ricky Sanchez, big time muckety-muck at WFAN. I was impressed, Spike, with uh, some of the footage I saw, some of the pictures I saw of this event for your radio show. Um, I got to be honest, I, I didn't know you had it like that. I didn't know that you were really cooking with gas over there. I, I know nothing of radio but that, that was uh, a, that, that seemed big time, man. It seemed like you've got a huge audience. Boomer and Geo, our morning show at
1: WFAN, we put on our second live stage show. So when people say radio show, they often think it's just like a live broadcast, but we sort of stole the idea from the rights Ricky Sanchez live podcasting. And in April, we did it at uh, a place called white Eagle hall in Jersey city, New Jersey, which was 300 people, just sort of a, um, proof of concept and the idea is for the show to be like an uncensored stage show version of the radio show but not Mm. not really at all like the radio show except it has the same people in it so the idea is to have maybe a new sort of bit or section every seven to ten minutes to keep the audience engaged and have it be i think what's the word i'm looking for? sort of edgy enough to make people feel like they're getting something different mm. but not so edgy that if somebody has their phone out and is recording it that we're going to end anybody's career. So we did the yeah. first one there and then the second one was at a place called the Paramount in Huntington on Long Island, which is a beautiful venue but is almost 1200 people. So it was a much bigger stage. But we <laughs> it was I give a lot of credit to the show because they the ideas were flowing, so we had a mm. little person vo- vo- version of Boomer Seisen on the stage <laughs> called Little Boomer. And that was part one of the bits. I ended up having to dress like Wendy of Wendy's because I lost a bet. Mm. Uh, we we had another member of the air staff come out as Baby New Year, so he came out in a diaper with a bonnet on in a crib to wish everyone Happy New Year. But it was great. It was we had it was a big stage show. We had a we have a very good staff from our promotions person, Emily, to um, to all of our air staff. But I was very proud of it. It, d- it did look big,
0: right? The photos made yeah. it look like a really big production. Cool. I was proud of them. And, and you looked so happy in a way that maybe if it was your own thing, it would be narcissism if you were that ecstatic. But because yeah. you are, you're effectively a coach mm-hmm. on a show like that. It, it seemed like you were taking real pleasure in watching this thing grow and watching the people succeed. And it looked like a very, as healthy an experience as could be had in entertainment.
1: I was, yeah, I kept saying I was proud. I was very, it's weird to say about people that are, I guess your age, some older than you or whatever, but it's, it's very hard to get people to do something new when they're successful at it and they've been doing it for a long time. And that's who I'm working with, with the morning show. They're very successful. They're They were successful when I got there. They did not need me and they did not need anything new. But the fact that I proposed something new and it worked and they had fun and they were really good at it was really exciting to me. So, and it's one thing to do it on the radio. The radio is great. I love live radio. I think it's awesome. But to do it on a stage in front of people, if you've ever performed on stage before, is a a completely different Mm -hmm. rush because you're, there's no net or whatever. And there's, you know, uh, of course everybody cheering for you is amazing, but something being a dud is also terrifying and crushing Mm. to move on from. And, uh, I don't know, seeing them do it and pull it off even better than the first time did make me really happy and really excited. And I know from us doing the live show, I know, like, This will send, this doesn't, I don't mean this to sound egotistical, but I've done it before. I know I can do it. So I don't take much pride in doing it myself, but to be able to stand on the sideline and sort of give Mm -hmm. them, uh, I guess leadership or, or whatever I'm doing or advice and them doing it is a different sort of pride. You know, I'm not a parent, Mm -hmm. but
0: I imagine on some level, it feels like sort of the same way. I mean, I'm trying to think of whether any of my advice is translated to anything. Um, maybe down the road, maybe later. I Hey, I tried something new per your coaching advice today. I don't <laughs> know how well it went. I, I, I went on Twitter, Spike. I tweeted. I, oh, uh, what did you I, tweet I, about? I didn't see it. I tweeted um, in defense of myself and my ideas. It's always the best. When oh. you go on Twitter and you're very defensive, that yep. usually... That usually works out well. Um, it was in response to. Uh, well, look, here, here, here's the, the backstory about the. Yeah, the the yeah. whole the whole rigmarole because my guy Ryan Glassbeagle breaks the story of what the NBA viewership on Christmas was uh, because it was just they were just holding on to it, I guess, for as long as they possibly could because they didn't like it. Um, the NFL had put their numbers out and the NBA had not. And it was a fairly surprisingly low figure up against the NFL. The NFL 10X'd the the NBA product. And the year before, going up against three NFL games you know, with uh against five NBA games. They're a little kind of there there are details and particularities, but the NFL 5X last year at 10X this year. And so I was just kind of, you know, I was just sort of yapping about it. And uh man, it's not fun, Spike. Is it this Twitter? I, I I don't think uh I it's don't horrible. think I got good engagement. And I think I just got people mad at me. It's just uh it's back to the drawing board. It's horrible, Twitter. Is it that <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> I,
1: it, it really is horrible. I, I did not know that you had tweeted about it. I know that everybody was talking about it and then you are a focal talking point, which by the way, you have been four years in this issue since you were at it's the crazy. athletic. It's yeah. crazy. Because I remember arguing <laughs> with Sam Vicini at one yeah. point when you had written an article about it years ago on Twitter, when he was like, nobody cares about this. Why does it, or why does anybody care about this? And I was like, of course, everybody cares about this. I, why they do, I, I, I don't know if I could articulate why, but they yeah. certainly do. And
0: uh, I did not know that you had tweeted about it. It. Oh tweet, yeah, it, yeah. It, I spent hour. I was tweeting up a storm today. I was tweeting I a lot about, about it. I I, maybe, maybe you should. Maybe you shouldn't. I don't yeah. know if it's a good if it's a good use of your time. Um, no, it's a weird issue. I mean, now I'm going to be narcissistic a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you talked about how it's become a thing for years, right? It's a weird one. It's almost like it's almost like if I picked I picked the Warriors to win in 2015, no big deal, you know, no, no big deal. But it, I, I picked it, and it, it happened. But it's almost like being held to that every year. I, I, I think what I had done years ago was to notice just a really sudden, substantial decline. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to go on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's put me in this weird mental space with it, Spike, because it's this strange thing. I actually like basketball. I actually want the NBA to do well. But now I'm cognizant that I will be mocked on the internet if, if it does, does well. well. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's totally... It's a strange... It's a strange thing. I never, and it's weird because it's not like I ever said, well, forever the NBA will, you know, be in the doldrums and continue to enervate and shrink. It was more, hey, they lost half their audience. You know, what the, let's, let's take a look at this. Um, But now it's just this very, there's a lot of sensitivity around it. And it's one of these things where. I think it's just a very interesting issue. I think it's an issue where if you talked about it, if you put it out there as a question, let's say on the radio, on a sports radio station, everybody's coming with ideas on what the NBA needs to do, right? Everybody has their idea how do you get back to the old heights of a few years ago or the Jordan era? And it's sort of it's interesting as to what makes a sport pop, what makes a sport resonate. Um but it doesn't seem like there's an appetite for that conversation within Within that industry, there's just there's just a lot of sensitivity and a lot of pain.
1: One of the take rules is that there is no glory in being right if it's about something bad, which I learned. Mm. Uh, I learned myself with the rights to Ricky Sanchez stuff that I was right about a lot of the bad things and I never seemed to get any credit for it. People were just more mad at me when it actually happened. <laughs> that, yeah. that So I think part of it is, is that I wonder why it is so divisive. I wonder if they do feel, I said, I know you too well to know how you would, how you would come across to somebody who doesn't know you. So, mm. so I, I think, I wonder if part of it, if I, I'm not saying I, this is the case. I'm saying I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if part of it is people simply don't want you to be right. Like they feel that you're cheering for it on some level, Mm. because I, I I think I felt that way when I didn't think Ben Simmons was good. And I think, but I was, I was conflicted internally because I wanted the team, I wanted the Sixers to win, not just for them, but for everybody else. But I also knew that if they won because of him, that I would not be able to enjoy that in the same way that I would enjoy it otherwise. And I wonder if it came out that I was like, that there was too much told you so in my tone and people could, could tell that. Like this issue is, as much as it can be, centered on a single person it is a world, league-wide issue you are a central figure in the conversation of it which is funny it's, but you are
0: it's insane yeah. it's crazy it just happened one day i did some back of the napkin math back in 2019 and i i remember the day i did it and i just i i, I just did it in the little calculator on the laptop and i went oh my god they're down 45% on ABC uh over the last eight years. I mean, that's that's kind of crazy. Um, and then I put it out there, and it was just one of these things that it's there's an omerita, you're just not supposed to. And I think the big sin of it too is that back in those days, um I said that maybe some of the activism was repelling people. Sure. Yeah, they, maybe that was a factor. And that was something that I guess um for whatever reason people found to be uh, very much sinful to, to think in those ways, to talk in those ways. And you, know, you you have this issue on the Internet when you're a public figure, as we are, where sometimes people, they're not necessarily mad at you, but they're mad at who they think you are because yeah. we're all drowning in information. And I think some people have like thought that I'm talking constantly, that the NBA is struggling with viewership because it's too woke, which is not really the content at House of Strauss. I mean, sometimes I see something and I think it would, you know, hey, there, there might be a point here or there, but well, it, but it's one of these things where it's like you become that sort of representation to people, and then it's not even really about you. Um, it's just sort of what you, kind of what you resent, uh, not resent, heh, Freudian, what you represent. And um, you see this with all kinds of people. Malika Andrews is in a totally different topic, for instance. But anyway.
1: Well, when the the NFL went ratings went down briefly around the same time, I believe there was the same conversation that the act that people had gotten there tired was. of the the activism, and yep. everything does sort of boil down to a political discussion in that way. I think the more interesting thing that I would ask because ratings are so, which you brought up too, with the out of home thing, which adds an extra texture to it that doesn't, that wasn't there before in the cord cutting thing. I would love to know a, a much bigger question. Is the NBA less popular than it was? Because I don't yeah. know that. I, I find that much harder to parse mm-hmm. whether a, on the whole is the NBA less popular than it was 20 years ago or 15 years ago. I, I actually have no idea because when I think about it, the NBA in the early
0: 2000s was actually a pretty terrible product. Yes, yes, you know, and 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 in an eight-year, a, a post Jordan adir, yeah. yeah. Uh, which to me is interesting. I mean, that's that's something I wanted to maybe write about. Which is, um, I don't know why my voice cracked like I was going through puberty, but I got very excited. Uh, I think the idea that the NBA fell into this crevice after Jordan and then crawled its way back up. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting story. The how of that, the why of that. It's easy to just go, hey, Kobe, LeBron. But they did things. They made changes. They changed their rules. They did some things that I think make journalists a little uncomfortable, and that's one of the reasons we haven't revisited it, which is dress code. I don't remember being in favor of the dress code, but what if we live in a world where that worked? Is that something that is capable of being digested. I, I don't know if that was part of, if that was part of the why of it and part of the reversal, uh, because of America's racial attitudes or whatever. Um, I, I don't know, but it definitely, it fell into a bit of a hole and it climbed back out of it and then it fell into a hole again. So I suppose one perspective is this is just the rhythms of life and it kind of ebbs and it flows. Um, but, I'm just so fascinated with all this stuff. I love to know why things resonate, how popular anything is. And I don't know why I think that way, but that's just the way I think. I think it's also
1: so hard to figure out whether it's even possible to quantify what helping it looks like because of the way that audience has changed, because of the way that Mm -hmm. audience habits have changed, you know, they even even in podcasting over the last 10 or 15 years, people, when somebody asked me how, you know, how do I get my podcast to be popular? I I feel like I would have had an answer maybe 10 years ago, but I I don't really have an answer now. And once the the NBA starts losing television audience and the landscape of media changes so much, There are so many small things that could contribute to it. I don't even know how you would reverse it. I I think one interesting thing to look at is, okay, so baseball made all the changes in rules this past year and they pointed to an increase in attendance and ratings. Now it's kind of cheating because they were, they were not comparing to pre pandemic levels. They were comparing to times when like audience was objectively lower than it was before, so it's an increase over the year before, but not really an increase over where it was f- four years ago when everybody said it was in trouble. Okay, but the vibe certainly is different on baseball. Whether that will continue or not, I don't know, but I think the at least the perception that the rule change that it was going in the right direction and everybody feels a little bit better about it has changed the conversation around baseball at least a little bit i think over the last year whether the rating changes are real or not i think if i were the nba i i would look less at the the and and i think you could have seen the bleeding of the, the game product coming a million miles away as soon as they started making everything else more important than the actual games. And, and that, that's been happening for years and years and years, and they've been so proud of their online engagement. But online engagement doesn't pay the bills people watching the games do. But I would wonder, I would ask if I were Adam Silver, which I am not, and I was a union, which I am not, I would ask myself, what are some changes we could make that would be basically universally agreed on as positive like the pitch clock, like getting rid Mm. of the shift, like universal DH, even though I'm not a DH guy. What are some things we could change in the game and around the game that would make everybody feel better and feel like we were on the better track, even if it didn't make ratings go up? But now I feel like they will see these numbers and they're so, they're so uh, financially focused and audience focused on getting this TV deal done that they will be, they will make decisions to get that done rather for the, rather than the overall vibe and health of the game, which I feel like is in a worse place, you know, maybe not the health of the game on the court, but the perception of
0: the health of the game overall. I'm sorry, that was long, but I was, I was thinking it as I was saying it. I totally agree with you. And I think if you're them, you have to think short term. Desperately so, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you care about the game, then you're thinking more long-term and what builds it up. But everybody's got different ideas, different opinions. Yeah. Personally, I don't like these 140 to 130 scores. Uh, it feels like dilution to me. Uh, right. People, I saw somebody, some media members saying, hey, why aren't we talking about when Luca has these 40-point triple-doubles? And I thought, well, when you say <laughs> it happens every day. day. <laughs> Yeah. When you start having 140 to 130 all the time, then this gets less, uh, oh my God. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's what people, maybe that's what other people want. And it definitely becomes tempting. It becomes tempting to project what you want as the solution, even if you're wrong. You know, we talked about the danger of rooting against certain things. Um, I am rooting for the NBA, but I was not rooting for the in-season tournament because I don't really like it. I think it seems very contrived and just you, you gotta give me a reason to like it beyond that you did it. But maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I wasn't fair to it because of my own because of my own perspective. And it's difficult to disentangle what your preference is for what the audience preference would be. Well, I can tell you
1: one thing that they should do is they should stop listening to everybody on Twitter and start listening to more normal people. The NBA.
0: They, I mean, they, they, they really should. They, they, you what could, do you think the normal person would tell them? What do you think normal person would say?
1: Well, I'd, I don't know. But the, if I were them, I would ask those questions. Like I, I would do, I, I don't know how much research they, they would do, but... They should do massive, massive, massive amounts of audience research about people who are from normal people who buy tickets to one game a year, who watch seven games a year.
0: By the way, I just... Are you, Are you recording yeah, locally? Are you recording locally? I'm recording locally. I'm oh, recording yeah. locally. I didn't know okay. it talked. I was like, oh my God. I was so focused like getting the local record set up. Maze is going to be mad. It's going to have some technical thing. I'm you recording cannot hear locally. this. But, but it just became... Spike became aware that it recorded in progress because I forgot to record at the, begin, at the beginning. <laughs> anyway. Um, poor Maze. I,
1: <laughs> I don't know how much actual research they do, but I would do research on people who do not consume the product as much as it seems like they're focusing on people who do consume the heavy 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 users of the product that they mm-hmm. because casual fans are the ones that are the, are the ones that pay the bills and keep it going like I, I they are if you think of the 30 million people who watched whatever NFL game on Sunday that all of those people, are just thinking about football all week long and tweeting about it. And like that, yeah. I'm, I'm just, those people are there. They will be there. You could, you could sh- change things and they're still going to be there. I just, my perception is they listen to too many people online and not enough regular people.
0: Per what, that, what you're saying about regular people and respecting the regular person. Well, I want to segue to you yeah. being mad at Bill Barnwell, but now I'm, I'm distracted by my own idea of Adam okay. Silver doing a listening tour and how it seems almost like a Nathan Fielder type of thing, just watching <laughs> yeah. him talk to normal people in bars, kind of hunched over... Uh, just with his strange manner. Anyway, yeah. um, I'm telling you, if they did focus groups, obviously there's tons of different
1: kinds of research. But the sort of there's the the polling research where you give people 20 questions and they answer it in a half hour or 20 minutes or whatever. But then there's focus groups where you get people in a room and you ask them questions and you ask them follow up questions and you videotape them and you listen to what they say. And I bet he would be horrified at what casual fans said. <laughs> like, if you ask casual fans about the NBA, how many of them do you think would bring up the fact that that they
0: don't know if their favorite player is going to play if they go? Oh, I think it would be huge. I think mean, it would be a huge part of it. Like, and no defense. I mean, yep. people would then argue, what, what happens is somebody would argue at them that you think there's no defense because the pace is faster yep. and they're shooting more threes. But I, I hear no defense all the time. That's another And the one. truth
1: is, it doesn't, Explaining to them rate stats and efficiency does not matter. The, the, the problem that you have is not that they don't understand, that not that they're not smart enough, like because that's the, what we'll get to in a second. The fact is, is that if their perception is that nobody plays defense you, and that is a problem to them. Whether they're wrong or not, I could say, you know what? You don't want to go back to the games in the nineties where a playoff game was 84 to 73. And maybe that's true, but also if their perception is that there's no defense and that is a problem that you need to do something about that, whatever yeah. that is. And the answer can't be, have them understand defensive efficiency. I'm sorry. <laughs> this just it's not, it's not the answer,
0: you know? Yeah. It's a score thing. If somehow in the NFL, um they quicken the pace to an absurd standard and let's say the defensive efficiency was the same, but the scores were suddenly 70 to 60, that it would be it would be weird regardless yes. of what the efficiency is. Yes. people people would describe that weirdness as a lack of defense, yes. regardless of whether the defense was actually performing worse. Um, For sure. It would just, it's just this feeling of this feels off. This feels like it's not something that is familiar to me. It's a little bit. Strange. We'll we'll yeah. get into some of what's happening. I mean, your team is a little bit intriguing, and Embiid, and, and we'll we'll mm-hmm. get into that. But I want to I want to swing by another Philadelphia team, uh, Spike. Why are you mad at Bill Barmwell over the Eagles of Philadelphia? I'm
1: not mad. I'm just, are you seething? I was disappointed. So I read. You talk about being on too online. I I can say that one of the the worst things that a media personality can do is be too online. Whether that is a Mm -hmm. journalist or a talk show host, I I know there are some people who can consume a ton of online chatter and not have it affect their work or their attitude, but most people cannot. Most people are human. Bill Barnwell clearly is just online too much. Like he's clearly online too much. So he did a, he did a column on an ESPN plus the 10 most frustrating NFL teams, I think it was. Mm. And Jalen Hurts was the, the, uh, the picture. So obviously the Eagles were on the list. So I was like, okay, let's see where the Eagles are. And the Eagles are number one. So the reason, and I will read this because now I have it up in front of me, the problem it says a fan base with lofty expectations and a roster with meaning, meaningful flaws interact to a toxic effect. Eagles are not. Eagles fans are not known for their patience. In twenty in week one of the twenty eighteen season, during their home debut after winning the Super Bowl the prior February, fans booed the team off the field when they trailed six three at halftime to the Falcons. The same thing happened this season when a 9-1 and Eagles team was booed off the field on offense. They came back to beat the Bills, but the following week, the Eagles fans booed them again as they trailed the Chiefs. Also not <laughs> true. That game was in Kansas City, but whatever. These are the fans who ran coach Andy Reid out of town in 2012 and who wanted to fire general manager Howie Roseman after a disastrous 2020 season. Okay. So we're talking about why the football team is most frustrating. And the first eight sentences are about the fans. Now, there's a few problems with this. First of all, when you become a writer, your experience consuming the sport is different than a fan. Yeah. You should not project how you feel about sports about how fans should feel about sports. And this whole idea that like and where this comes from is they're so online, they see fans reacting all the time emotionally and over the top. Because that's what fans do, which is why they spend so much time and money on sports. They're not mm. getting paid to do this like you are. They're doing it in their free time. So they're having fun or they're angry or they're sad and they're emotional. So first of all, you want them to consume it like objectively and rationally. There's no point in doing that if you're a fan. There's a point in doing that if you're a writer. That's the, f- the first thing. The second thing is the Eagles aren't frustrating because their fans have lofty expectations. The Eagles are frustrating because they're not like good right now. Like mm. that that's why, because they're, you know, I think uh, Ben Solak really wrote, wrote, wrote a really good piece about what the problem was with the offense. Shame on fans for having a team who was in the Super Bowl last year, objectively one of the best teams, if not the best team in the entire league. The runner up for MVP was the quarterback. They were 10 and one this year. If any team should have lofty expectations, it yeah. is that team. Second, the fans did not run coach Andy Reid out of town. Andy Reid was there for 15 years. Hmm. The last team, he, he, Andy Reid won a, uh, a battle for control of player personnel, and the team got horrible. They went eight and eight one year. they were four and eight, by the way. They saved the season, but that team was still a disaster. Then they were four and 12. Andy Reid's son had tragically died that that year uh, because of a drug overdose. Andy Reid knew it was time to leave. The organization knew it was time to leave. The fans did not run him out of town. If, if they were going to run him out of town, he would have been out of town like years prior to that. That's just not how it works. And this is just this is just a man who is mad at the internet. Like instead of a man telling me what is wrong with the football team, you see what I'm saying? Like it it feels like he has a cross to bear. And I think it's just so sad uh, that like his response as Mr. X and O journalist is to just troll the fans of the Eagles. Um, And I know he's not doing it, laughing at somewhere. I know he's doing it and thinking he's like, Right. And that is what makes me mad. He is annoying. He's an annoying person.
0: Well, what makes me mad is that he's not identifying why your team is truly annoying. And I find them less annoying. Now they're losing. Uh, It's that goddamn tush push that we argue about uh, a few (laughs) times a week. That stupid gimmick tush push. That absurd play that needs to be banned for all eternity. But hey, if they're losing, then I'll I'll keep. They they can have it as long as they're losing. Once they win too much, once the Eagles get on a roll, that's when I really I, I need Goodell to lay down the hammer. And stop with this nonsense, Ethan. Pigskin, Ethan. (laughs) I love Pigskin, Ethan. America's foremost football writer, Ethan Strauss. Yes, I'm referring to myself in the third person. Solak is good, by the way. I I, I enjoy, I enjoy his content. Um, I enjoy exploring the rich, vast territory of of NFL media because I actually never really interfaced with it until maybe 2019. So it's. it's, it's all a very new experience and it's the same but different, you know? Well, football is so such a
1: complicated sport too, I find. Like, yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for the writers, which Barnwell, by the way, was at one point because I, I think it was a Chip Kelly article he wrote when the Eagles had hired him that made me understand Kelly's offense a lot more and I felt informed at the time. I think football, basketball you can make it sound complicated, but you can pretty much watch and know if you if you watch enough basketball, right? Football, mm. there's so much to know. And I think that the writers, I thought what Solak did in that article, article was really good. If you can take something complicated and not only dumb it down, not only explain it in a way that I understand it, but also make it interesting enough for me to want to continue to read is quite a challenge. And I think football when it's there,
0: I think is awesome. That sort of writing I think is really, is really great about football. I I think that's why I'm into it right now is there's just so much mystery to it, but there's always going to be mystery to it. I didn't play high school football. There's a lot that I don't, that I don't know. And Mm -hmm. it is intimidating in that way. I think it's one of the reasons why it especially has a lot of former player commentators and content makers, because even if you kind of know what you're looking at, you feel like you can't totally be sure and then you see somebody who actually knows and they played and they start talking about A-gaps and B-gaps and fire zone and you go, I can't even... Watching is not going to get me to whatever this level is. Uh, I'm still going to have some takes. I'm still going to... I might write a a Kyle Shanahan take uh, by the end of the weekend. I'm developing... I'm gestating a Shanahan take right now. But Well, I
1: think sometimes... because. Tiki will explain stuff to us sometimes at work. Tiki Barber, who I work with. I like that you explained it. It would have been quite the name drop if you just left it at Tiki, but continue. Yeah. So Tiki Barber, who does afternoons at WFAN, will sometimes, somebody will say something, whether it's one of his co-hosts or me or whatever, and he'll go, you have it literally completely wrong. And Mm -hmm. it will be why. And he'll explain it. And at that moment, you'll understand, but then you'll walk away from it saying, well, how am I supposed to watch the whole rest of the game now? Like if I was that wrong about the one thing that I thought that I knew, then what about all of these other things that I I think that I knew? But I also think that sometimes they're too close to it. And sometimes you can just see a guy that doesn't have it, or there's like a human element to it that maybe you can see in somebody's eyes or body movements that sometimes is easier to pick up if you're not watching the intricacies of the game.
0: Yeah. Well, it's the human element of analysis where – Kurt Warner is a huge supporter of top House of Strauss Muse Brock Purdy, but Mm. it's just so clear when Warner is talking about Purdy that he's he's looking at Brock Warner. That this is they they're both in the Arizona uh, area and you know similar origins. They clearly know each other, and so. Hey, maybe everything he says about the guy is on point and true and correct, but there's just so much there beyond the observation that has to tilt the analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, I, football
1: is a weird one. (laughs) Football is a weird one because if it's two people who don't know what they're talking about, I imagine just regular fans, you and me or whatever. If we're arguing I can imagine how dumb that sounds to somebody who does know what's going on, um, yes. but also it sounds so boring when they're arguing about it. So oh. the like the I guess the the happy medium of of
0: wherever that is is the best part of of football. Well, okay, so football has its own kind of analysis, which is almost like. What, what am I looking for here? It's almost as though when you're watching a movie and a character shows off being really smart, really smart, like Goodwill Hunting, where he's referencing the different books, and a lot of these books are fairly midwit, fair. But in that scene, you're just enjoying that he's talking at a Sorkin esque pace, and he's re- revealing the knowledge. I feel as though that is some of what's appealing to people when Orlovsky is it or- Orlovsky? Am I pronouncing yeah, that yeah, correct? Yeah, when he's pointing at the screen and gesticulating wildly and he's going on and on about it, I almost feel as though some of what is resonating with people isn't even the information that they're absorbing. It's just kind of enjoyable to see a passionate person rattle off a bunch of arcane info and reveal that there's this, you know, giant world that you don't even know about. I had a chance
1: I could have found I could have found Dan Orlovsky. And I, I blew it. He, mm. when I was working at WIP years ago, I guess his wife maybe is from Plymouth Meeting or something, uh, an area around Philadelphia. And he had retired and was there and was like looking for work and called me a couple of times and sent emails. And we had him do a couple of guest spots on the air and I, he was, he was like good at it and we never did anything with it. And we could have had Dan Orlovsky and instead DSPN got him and blew it. I
0: guess it was yeah. lazy at the time. But would he have become Orlovsky? I don't Probably know. Not. It's just Probably in that situation, In that situation, it's the whole thing. It's the Halliburton trade. Right. Well, you know, would he have flourished in that way if he was remaining on the Kings? I'm I'm not sure. I don't right. know. How, how do I summarize this massive email I got from a subscriber who specifically wanted me to bring up this topic to you and I sent the email. I'm looking at it and I want to read the email, but it is such a long email, Spike. Can you can you counsel me in this? I I can, I, I will read the first paragraph and then yeah. we will we we will see how we are going to proceed. Um hi Ethan, this is from subscriber Grant. Uh I think it would probably make more sense to take uh to save this take for your next conversation with Spike, which would tickle the participants of the conversation below. But I responded in the following way to my Philly fan friend sending me this tweet from Michael Levin, that's Spike's co-host of Rice Rick Sanchez, um, you know, comparing the Pistons versus the Hinky Sixers. And uh, Mr. Levin's tweet, looking it up right now. I respect the Pistons' historic futility, but wake me when you cause a mass moral panic over how it's more ethical to suck aimlessly that makes the NBA foist a geriatric narcissist on you who hires his son to execute one of the dumbest scandals in sports history, plus Tony Roden. I, I have no idea if any of that made any sense to the uninitiated on this issue. Um, and uh basically I think it was a very anti-Hinky email, if I'm sure. if I'm summarizing, that some of the sins of Hinky uh it had something to do with um his own failings personality wise and how uh, I'll, I'll read another, another part. I like Hinky by the way, for the, for the record, I'm compromised. My whole thesis is that Hinky's Hamartia was his desire for his style of tanking, which wasn't that unique to be regarded as innovative to be sure. Um, or two, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Some of the syntax yeah. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm up and down with it. Um, and uh, because he pointed out the teams have tanked before. And his yeah. bullet points are why, you know, for why Hinky did what he did. Uh, combat imposter syndrome, get attention for having a brand. Shout out to uh, my GM take. Uh, combat nerd versus jock syndrome, keep ownership off his back. And he concludes with, but for the same reasons Philly is Philly, read pugilistic, tough nose, defiant little brother, and fiority complex. Uh, the rights of Ricky Sanchez project cast too large a light on the extent to which the 76ers were breaking the unwritten rule of openly tanking and bragging about it in the process. There's so much there, Spike. Yeah. I, 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 It was a long email. Um, where do you want to take that one?
1: Okay, so essentially, these are the same things that we have heard for years. Some of them are true. Some of them are not true. And some of them are... Grant, no offense, I appreciate you ask, get asking Ethan to ask me this, but not actually understanding what we're doing when we're leaning into the most ridiculous parts of ourselves when we reference this. Like, Mike knows how silly what he was saying was, like to reference the Piston's in regard to the current Sixers. Okay, so just one by one. One thing that I've heard a lot is what Hinky did was not that uh, unique and it wasn't that different. And that's actually just like wrong. Uh, now, I don't think it was that difficult to figure out, but it was certainly the most bold attempt at it, which is a credit at least at the time to both Hinky and ownership that they were willing to do it so boldly. No, yeah. it wasn't rocket science, but it did take and the Hinky mentioned this in his letter and I, I know I'm sounding like a sycophant when I say that, but courage courage and patience were the the smartest were were the keys to what they were doing, not intelligence. As far as like him doing this just to keep ownership off his back, hello, he got fired in two years because he couldn't keep ownership off his back. Like this is literally the hardest way to keep ownership off your back is losing owner ownerships. uh, GMs can be patient forever. Owners are almost never patient. So if the plan is to lose forever because it's your plan and ownership will be fine with that, that's a very stupid plan. Uh, I think generally this is somebody who actually should listen to a lot of hinky talking post NBA and realize that he is not the same sort of human that like, he doesn't think about these things the way that we think about them. I don't think he was trying to prove anything to anybody. I don't think he was trying to combat imposter syndrome. I think he thought this was the best way to do it and his misunderstanding basically of the human condition and lack of credit that he gave to the pressures around what he was doing were ultimately his downfall. Like, I don't think he was trying to prove a point. Mm. I I really don't. I, I, no, I, I, I genuinely do not. Um, and, and, and to his last point about us casting too large a light, on that, I agree. If, if we did not if we did not back him so much and make such a fucking issue out of this and make it us versus them and essentially call everyone who doubted this a, like an, an idiot for two years and have parties about losing and all these things that we did, which by the way, I'm proud that we did and we did not have any mm-hmm. bad intentions and it was fun and it was a great experience. But he pro- he might not have gotten fired if we didn't do that. He may have lasted a longer time. We we are at least somewhat responsible for how this ended and when it when it ended for sure.
0: So what what are you what is your take on all that? I mean that's fascinating. I'm I'm thinking I just love that answer by right there. Um, gave me a lot to think about. How you're proud of what you did, but you also are cognizant that it might have actually gotten him fired and effectively kicked out um, into the NBA wilderness. I think one thing I think about is that, it's funny how issues dovetail on the podcast sometimes. Hinky, in a way, was a victim of an image that people were going after because he didn't really sketch out an image himself. I think there was this idea that he was some sort of malevolent, anti-social nerd. When you mm-hmm. actually talk with him, he he. funny enough, he sounds like Danny McBride. Um, and it just, you know, in cadence, now, you know, not that that says much about someone's personality, but it's not, it's not like that. But I think he felt like he didn't have to communicate or he shouldn't have to communicate. And the role of a GM is in part to do that. And I think that might've, um, that might've informed what happened right there. I think there's something to what the emailer is saying, though, that when you break an unwritten rule, um, there are consequences to it. And, or when you sort of dispense with a noble lie, there are consequences to it. I think the NBA has dealt with this writ large where, look, maybe you guys don't really hate the guys on the other team. You know, maybe you like those guys in the other team, more than you like the fans who root for you. Maybe that's the case. But once we know that and once we see that, then this whole dynamic is unsettled and it changes and we're not as connected to it. Uh, I think there could be something like that when it comes to the tanking, where, yeah, we know everybody does it to a certain extent, but once it becomes known it becomes a problem and I can't totally articulate why it becomes a problem, but it just, it just seems like it. it, it is. It is like the specificity of it, the visibility of it. Um, the NBA obviously felt like they had to do something about it. And so if it could have just been made less visible in some kind of way, that probably would have helped him. I just don't know as much as you know about the situation to know how that could even, could even have been possible.
1: Well, I think there's some, and, and there's a, a quote in here from the exchange that he he said, he said, why did he do it? Because he was a narcissist and couldn't just have his team suck. He needed to remind you ad nauseum how he's so smart and how he's cranking the code and tanking away. No one ever has before, but he, he didn't even talk about it yeah. ever that way. You know, he, he did, he did, he did press conferences occasionally, but he, we, we like to your point People projected that image onto him, but he certainly wasn't that way. Um, and to your your point as well, that those teams, by the way, were no worse than t- t- tons tens of teams that have come afterwards yeah. and and came before and were really only bad for three years and may have only bad been bad for two years if Joel Embiid didn't break his foot for the second time. So, um, yeah, I I do agree that. Uh, breaking that, un. I I would love to go back and see what the point of inflection was that this became so divisive. Like, what was the moment? And I do think that, as you pointed out, his lack of acknowledgement about how messaging can be important
0: was his fatal spike. flaw. Like, I think it was that time that the Philly fans booed. I think that was the part that was the point <laughs> yeah. that, that broke the process. It was that especially loud booing Boo. that was dished out. And I know how he, those people are. I, I don't have any contact with them like Barnwell does, but I've seen Silver Lining's playbook. I know they're a rowdy bunch. He, they, uh, there was, I remember
1: when. Jaleel Okafor got in the fight with Celtics fans after a game in Boston, a fist fight. And then it came out that he had been pulled over for speeding, going 110 miles an hour over the Ben Franklin Bridge. And then it had come out that he had been in sort of like a fist fight in old city Philadelphia and gotten a gun pulled on him. And all this happened at once. And they suspended Okafor, I think specifically for the fight or the bridge incident. I think it was for the fight. And as I am believe it to be, Hinkie did not want to suspend him for it and, mm. and, and didn't even want to acknowledge what was going on. And when you look at the press release when the Sixers announced that he was suspended, Sam's name is nowhere on the press release and does not give a quote on the press release either. So I, my guess is, and I'm just, you know, tea leaf reading that he was not in favor of that. And I don't, I just don't think he... He saw everything as sort of this equation where everything that he would say or do that, like any piece of information that he would give out would hurt their chances of of succeeding or making a deal. And everything was a very exact uh, mathematical equation to him, but he didn't figure in the math of the other stuff. That we're talking about like he didn't figure in the math of if you cannot finish the job then there is no success like if you Mm. don't have a job for the third and fourth year then none of this will work anyway so yes your percentage of getting the first pick in the draft will go down if you win 23 games instead of 17 but your percentage of winning a championship will also go down if you do not keep your job
0: and, yeah. and do not manage those other factors around you, you know? And
1: he, he didn't.
0: Well, he was, in a way, a man before his time. Now it's harder to tank. The, uh, mm-hmm. They've changed the lottery. But I also feel like unless you're the Pistons and it's become a meme that you're losing so many in a row, nobody really cares anymore. No. I mean, this, yeah. again, connects to the conversation about how popular is the NBA. Well, I mean, it, it just once they created the play-in tournament, and that's a form of dilution where everybody almost is just, uh, you know, uh, what's the what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, stones throw? Yeah, uh, stones throw yeah. from the playoffs, even, even the worst teams. Um, it kind of created a circumstance where there's a lot less pressure on general managers. I mean, I've really looked up whether they get fired more than they did in the past, but it just it just seems like the league's kind of chilling in many ways. When I talked with Jay Caspian King, we were talking about the difference between the NFL and, um, and the NBA. You can make this analogy between similar characters with similar success in Bill Belichick and Greg Popovich. But with Belichick, it's get this old fuck out of here. He's past his prime. We're losing. And with Popovich, it's, yeah, you know, let the old man kind of <laughs> take the microphone, yeah. waddle out the center court, upbraid the fans. <laughs> well, even, <laughs> be the, even be the Bill Barnwell of Texas, you know, that kind of thing. Even
1: Mike Tomlin's won two Super Bowls, right? And yeah. his, his teams are good every year. And somehow they're winning games this year with a team that does not seem to be very good at all. And the the talk around Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh is like furious. Yeah. They're mad at him, you know, and it seems to your point, it seems unconscionable from afar to be mad at that guy, but they do not seem to seem to, or even, uh, what's his name in San Diego, uh, Staley, right. It got yeah. fired in the middle of the season. Meanwhile, you think Monty
0: Williams is getting fired. He's definitely not going to get fired. I mean, I like that you still refer to the Chargers as from San Diego. Oh, sorry. I'm yeah, Los Angeles. No, it's, Los Angeles. It, it's, yeah. a, it's a painful, that's a wound right there. It's, yeah. uh, it's tough. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, Bill Burr had a fan-blaming take on this. He was on Rich Eisen's show and yeah. he defended Belichick and he basically said the fans were spoiled. And everything he said was true about the historic unprecedented success and to do it across two decades and how insane it is. That all of a sudden, you're pushing this guy out the door. But at the same time, I appreciate that's how it is. That's how you get renewal. That's how the boomers don't hang on forever. <laughs> that once you stop succeeding, it's time to change. I am I like that it's like that. There's a vitality in that, Spike.
1: You wonder if the right move is to fire the coach. Because with an air talent, I would say somebody told me once with a great air talent, an all-time air talent, he wasn't talking about anybody specific. We were just talking about in general. He's like, yeah, you'd rather, you'd rather they stay on a year too long than leave a year too early, right? Like you'd rather know that it's over rather than potentially risking the PR and the what could have been rather than moving on a year too early. You'd rather be a year late. And I wonder... If Belichick, assuming that Belichick is gone after this season in New England, is he gone a year too late or a year too early?
0: It feels like a year too late. It, it? it does feel like you lose it. I, this yeah. is one of my main theories. My my One of my main House of Strauss theories. Um, as we all know, one of them is the NBA too woke. That's why it fails. That's number one, as everybody knows. Um, number two... Uh, <laughs> Brock Purdy, clearly the MVP of the NFL, even if he does throw four interceptions. Uh, Number three, the Eagles should be banned uh, for the tush push. push. And and, uh, number four, that we have a gerontocracy. And if you are especially old, we might want you in certain roles. I think I like an older announcer. I like an older narrator of a nature documentary. Mm-hmm. I don't think the CEO so stuff. <laughs> Am I wrong though? No, I no, mean, no, you're right. You're right. Uh, uh, is, I mean, I want David Attenborough. Yeah. What are we going to
1: do? But what are we going to do now that everybody's going to be older?
0: That people I mean, are going to live longer? Are we, should we have that, r- rules? Well, I, I look, I think, okay, well that's a whole other thing of how yeah. we, we organize society. But I, I think it's the big elephant in the room sometimes that you're almost often more... It's it's more frequent that you can broach it in sports than you can in some of these other businesses. In sports, mm-hmm. it's actually okay to go, look, man, I think Bill Belichick is kind of past his prime. Yeah. And the way a player would be past his prime, I think it's time to turn the page. I mean, this is a guy who came up with Lawrence Taylor in the 90s. And these coaches who are in their 30s are just having more success when they come into the league. But if you go... Bob Iger's too goddamn old to be running Disney for whatever reason that seems to be more of um, a taboo. But that's how I look at it. I look at there's no way Bob Iger is going to shepherd Disney to what it needs to be. He's too, This is too much. This is too much for a man in his 70s. It's just you can't you can't do it. Maybe you can be a caretaker in a way. But if you need to be running an organization with a tremendous amount of pressure and turbulence and technological change and strategic evolution i just don't think the very old can handle that kind of responsibility i don't think i could i i mean i i'm 47 oh, I'm oh you could, oh you
1: could do it oh, could i'm exhausted <laughs> i'm exhausted now I, like i i don't i i actually i wonder what it feels like to be that age and to grind like that do you know what mm, I mean? Like, yeah. I'm, It's wearing me out. I look so much worse than I did 10 years ago. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't imagine what that would be like at that age. There are some people who love it. I don't know if Iger loves the grind. But yes, it seems like it would be very tough to be in your 70s and, and do that.
0: Yeah. It seems almost and, impossible. Well, I think Succession, very divisive show. Um. Oh my God. I might have to read an email. By the way, another long email spike uh, of a listener slash customer who lost respect for me over mm. my enjoyment of the bear. Um. But huh. you know, we'll, we'll sit. You that read aside my email. Right I see. <laughs> <laughs> I read your email. Um. But yeah, Succession. People can debate how much of a heavyweight show that was. Um. But I think it got at something, which is the old man running the big institution is losing his capacity, which is a problem, but there's nothing really there to replace him waiting in the wings. And that's the predicament. I think that's the yeah. predicament that, yeah, people. Yeah, find well, Cause I'm, I'm, as you were saying it, he was too old to do
1: it yet. He was still the best at it of anybody there. Yes. Do you yes. know what I mean? Like he still had that, that he had more fuck you in him that And he almost lived an extra, because if you remember the first episode of Succession, it seemed like he was going to die within days. Remember, he was like, he was senile. He was a total disaster. And and he still was the only one around there who had it in him to truly run the company the way that it needed to be run. I wonder if we're going to have it in
0: us to run shit the way that the boomers do. I suspect you might, You're Gen X, my millennial people. Uh, yeah. I, right. I I don't I don't know. Um, I will read this email. I okay. will read this email. How much bear did you watch? Did you just I bow out Charlie. after an episode? You watched no, the entire watched bear despite yeah. not liking it. It's so unbelievable it, to me. If I remember correctly, that
1: the the episode where the cousin goes to the restaurant to train. Is the penultimate episode of the season, right? Yeah, forks. People okay. call it. So I, I it certainly so watched the whole episode because I got through that one, and there's no way I didn't watch the final episode. So, and the final episode is where they get all the money and build the new place or something. Is that what it was? Or
0: I, I, I it's it's starting to fade from my memory. Okay. I got distracted. Yes, I watched the... all of it. I definitely watched all of it. I got distracted by the thought of how if it was set in Philadelphia, there would probably be some rights to Ricky reference in there. It's the kind of show that would show that would do that. So (laughs) this, this is from (laughs) Zinzer. Hi, Ethan. I recently caught up with the bear and I feel as though I've lost some respect for you. With every passing episode, I find myself less interested in and more annoyed with the characters. Less invested in the storyline and more upset with everyone who has hyped this show up so badly, including some of my immediate family. The bear has so many problems. I'm sure others have articulated it better than I can. I will mention one particular issue that I have. The food is such an afterthought. I did not anticipate that take, by the way, Spike. This yeah, is very a very interesting take. A good yeah, take, Yeah, yeah. yeah. We either get people rat-a-tat-tatting some ingredients and fancy jargon at each other with no apparent enjoyment, rhyme, or reason, or we see someone obsessed over the idea for a super-specific dish invoked by a nostalgic-slash-traumatic childhood memory. Cue Donut Dude thoughtfully biting into donuts, tearing apart donuts, sketching second-grade level donuts, inspired by donuts, miraculously mastering the art of donutry several weeks after baking his first chocolate cake. Nobody really seems to care about the food in any kind of simple, hmm, yummy sort of way. It must have meaning, but the show either doesn't know how to properly explain whatever high flute concept these people come up with, or it has to painstakingly spell it out for the audience with a flashy neon sign overhead reading, emote. I find myself wholly unconvinced that the lead is any kind of really good chef and not just a whiny, nerdy, over serious boring guy who knows how to recreate soft drinks <laughs> please find a way to convincingly defend this sentimentalist clichéd overblown over the top uninteresting unappetizing hit you on the nose type of show please explain to me why this isn't simply ted lasso in a restaurant without the jokes wow at least my wife <laughs> at least my wife agrees z ps what's with the coach k obsession <laughs> And what is your response to that? That's I a mean, thoughtful I, email. It really is a thoughtful email. And I look, I, I am going to answer the mailbag questions. I got a big pile of them and I want to give good answers. And I, I appreciate the the questions I'm getting. Um, I, I mean, he threw me for a loop, man. I did not anticipate that he would attack the bear for its lack of passion the food. about food. Yeah. I thought it did that pretty well. I thought that when I saw the bucatini, I I wanted some bucatini. I um I also don't know if I need food explained to me that much. Um I I I think it's uh I mean, the idea that they should nerd out harder on food is a really interesting idea to me because I almost feel like they're doing it as much as you can do it without the network that that you're working for given some notes that this is too much. So I think they're doing that well. I do think some of the final episodes I got some problems with. I don't think I'm totally confident that season three is going to make me proud. I I will Uh. say that much. Um, That said, I enjoy being in a restaurant. I love workplace dramas. I feel like you, Spike, you worship at the altar of mad men and there are some similarities. You're in a workplace. You're in an unusual workplace. You're getting a peek behind the scenes. I like both those shows for those reasons. And God damn it, I know you might bring up my, my Mad Men take that you don't like, but I don't even know if we've <laughs> even discussed that one. But you no, don't I let don't that go. No, well, oh my God.
1: <laughs> I, I think, but I think the biggest difference between the two shows is I find that the stories of the people in Mad Men to be compelling and I don't find any people in the bear to be compelling. They all seem like, I feel like I'm watching a sitcom. They don't. They don't mm. seem like compelling characters at all. Like on top of the little annoying stuff, like everyone who's ever worked in a kitchen going online as soon as they saw the bear and saying, "Ooh, that's exactly what it's like." No, it's not. Stop it. Forget it. That
0: <laughs> what the, a take. <laughs> the girl, the, like, come on, the, the, the stop. And yeah, the, yeah. you think you know David Chang? You do not know. We know. <laughs> the, the,
1: the other thing, that, you know, or that the girl that he's dating is simply too flawless to uh, yeah. to be. But I just didn't find any of the people compelling. Whereas in Mad Men, I found the people to be either dislikable and compelling mm. or likable and compelling. But I didn't find anybody, aside from maybe his cousin a little bit,
0: but overall oh, in the show. Richie. Yeah, no, yeah Richie. I,
1: think,
0: I think the Richie character, fantastic. That guy feels like a real guy. Mm-hmm. That, that's the best defense I can say of that show. That yeah. guy a real feels like up. a real, a real, a real fuck up kind of guy yep. who exists in real life, who I have not seen portrayed in a show. Now, the lead character, and I think that actor is an excellent actor as well. I sometimes think I see that character too often. The taciturn, kind of brooding, the this, Tom this Cruise sort of guy. A, you're, he's really acting because yeah. he's kind of, he's kind of miserable and he's kind of quiet. And I think that actor is a great actor, but I don't, that's not a character I, I like a Roger Sterling. I like you to be funny. I like you to be lively. Um, I'm not, I'm not wholly invested in him. In him, I think that's a, but you know what? I mean, there's some Mad Men takes right there that I could have. I think there's an interesting thing that happened in Mad Men with, with John Hamm where there was something alluring and hypnotic about Hamm but I don't know if he's a great actor with a tremendous amount of range. Um, I think Slattery, who played Roger Sterling, who was considered for the Don Draper role, um, is a more adroit actor. And so I think some of Mad Men might have faltered a little bit. It might have been too much on Ham's shoulders. And I think uh, history may have validated me because it's not as though Ham has really gone on to uh, have a tremendous career after all the hype. So I'm just throwing that take out there. That's a take.
1: Well, I think... The longer the show went on, the more difficult it became to believe him, mm. that Don Draper character, because yeah. I, he, he was excellent at the first few years of Don Draper. Like the cool asshole that had a weird backstory, even though that backstory part was always a
0: little bit strange. You Um, didn't like the depression, the depression flashbacks, depression
1: dick. It was always a little bit weird. It's like, wait, this (laughs) is not even really your name. Why? What difference does
0: this make? Um, Clean up the whorehouse, you stupid kid. I don't think that was ever a line, but that's what every (laughs) flashback. (laughs) Um, Pour some water on some sawdust
1: and eat it. But even like the but beyond Don, like if we take uh, who's the the main girl in the bear, um, the black girl that comes to work with him, Sydney, yeah, yes. So take her versus Peggy. Like I found Peggy's story, like Peggy, to be much more interesting than she is. If 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 those are like similar characters, I guess. I mm. guess I just I found. I found so many characters in even Pete in Mad Men. Um, Very well played character. Yeah. Like I just thought there were so many characters in that show who I wanted to know what happened to them and more about them. And I just couldn't say that about, you know, the donut guy, the guy who, who
0: just instantly uh, can just ra- make desserts. Sp- Spike's racism. He has listed the two <laughs> black characters as fundamentally <laughs> uninteresting <laughs> Ah, you know, Burt Cooper, though, you know, the old white man, you know, we can just think and ponder him for hours with his <laughs> Ayn Rand obsession and his Japanese trinkets. I do love Burt Cooper. <laughs> the bear God. only had more white people. I just, that, that's what I've been
1: after this entire time.
0: <laughs> if o- if only the bear. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, you know what the bear has, though, Spike? You know what I like about the bear? It's got them accents. It's got the accents. It does have accents. It's got the Chicago. This is this is one of these things where the people listening have no idea what I'm referencing. What I about. said, <laughs> I I said that I do like slight demarcation of Mad Men. Not not disqualifying. Great show. Love Mad Men. But the dearth of New York accents in a show set in New York in the 1960s is something that always to me is it, it takes me a little bit out. It sort of it, it, it flubs my suspension of disbelief. And Spike has been so offended by this opinion. You yeah. can't want opinion, Spike? like a, a Bronx tale or something. <laughs> like, like That's yeah. a terrible movie. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm like I, I don't know. I work at WFAN and I feel like seven out of 10 people do hey, not have New York I'm Don Drape
0: over here. Yeah. Hey, it's like the Kodak. It's your yeah. memories. <laughs> So you don't forget about it. Hey, and that's what the money's for. Get <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I'm in. I'm in on this version yeah. of Mad Men. Oh, my God. Okay. So it's late on the East Coast, so we should probably wrap soon. Uh, we got two in dealers choice. We can either talk okay. about... The great Bill Simmons comparing Embiid favorably to Shaq. That's a very Mm. basketball-y topic right there. Very basketball. Or we can talk about Tom Haberstroh writing about uh, John Morant calling a referee a hoe and then becoming the main character on Twitter, stealing my thunder, um, as people got mad at at, at Tom for, for writing about this. Uh, which, whichever one you want, whichever one I, you want to take. I actually
1: think, it, because I'm going to have to talk about the Bill Simmons one on the the Ricky, I think the Haberstro one is more interesting because I had not, until you sent it to me, that we might talk about it. I, maybe I just haven't looked a lot online today. I did not see yeah. any of that conversation. I, I, I have had an extremely online day today, okay.
0: like Extremely. Even more so, so, so than usual.
1: I'm coming at this... I read the article and then I looked online at some of the reaction after I read the article and because I thought there was – do you want to give some
0: big picture about what the Haberstroh thing is about or – I, I do, but I'm, like, giggling at you doing the that's what the money's for in the uh, Sopranos-type <laughs> accent. Hey,
1: Gabagoo, <laughs> that's what the money's for.
0: Stop thinking. I can't <laughs> stop thinking about it. I'm, like, thinking about Pete Campbell in a New York accent. It's just it's too it's too much for me. It's too good. Hey, Trudy, uh, what the fuck you doing over here? <laughs> <Pete> <laughs> Where's Campbell? the moots? It's, like, everything's, like, Tommy Cutlets now. Like, Mad Men Cutlets. <laughs> Yeah. I actually think Pete Campbell probably did talk like a Patricia New Yorker back then, yes. and uh, I think that that would actually be plausible that he would sound uh, that he would sound that way. Um, yes, Tom Haberstroh on his Substack, The Finder, wrote about how uh, last season, I believe, uh, John Morant was very angry at a referee who he's had friction with, and in front of the media in the post-game uh, press conference, uh, called the ref a hoe. On the record, and that it, it seems like I don't think Tom is alleging that this is the biggest story in the world, or that John Morant is uh, has violated the sanctity of the NBA, but that it's interesting that this was buried, and I, I yeah. somebody sent Tom the audio, so we had the audio. And then a bunch of people got very mad at Tom for being a snitch and snitching on on John Morant, and uh, they they sort of stole the energy from me, Spike. I was the bad guy, and then it became uh, get mad at a uh, get mad at Tom. Um, but it was interesting because per the original subject of our discussion, I I did see some people who were interested in the league doesn't matter guy was also. Well, it is unfortunate that there are so few people in these locker rooms these days, Guy. Um, so few media around, which was part of, I think, the, that was the real meat of the story, that mm-hmm. there's something interesting happening where there's only one person around to hear something in a press conference. And John Morant kind of just gets to do whatever without any media scrutiny because the media has gotten so denuded at this point. I'm not sure if I'm doing a good expository. You tell me.
1: Yeah, it was, it's, it's one of those interesting things where the thing getting the traction is not the most interesting thing in the article and therefore the fight, like that, I think a lot of the nuance of what he was writing about, because I, I, I thought it was a, an interesting article for a number of reasons about, you know, what the job of those reporters that cover games is, what the, the motivation for burying it and what the motivation for writing it is. Because on some level, Haberstro including it in the article is a good reason why you would not include it when you're writing about the game that day. Yeah. Proof of concept. Right. Like, because now the only thing people are reading is you trying to and I know this isn't what Haberstroh was trying to do, but the the perception is you're just trying to out him for calling a ref a bad word when, realized, when all this other stuff is going on. There's also the whole idea of reporters maybe, and it didn't seem like this reporter uh, was doing that. This guy just wanted to get in and get out. He was sort of a backup reporter filling in um, and he said as much to Haberstroh. But the other thing is like, Reporters are like protecting access, you know, they they don't want their access taken away by the team. But then I think like what access, you know, local reporters don't get any scoops really. Like all the national reporters get any, get the scoops. Um, Like they're not going to not credential you for a game. Like I, I I don't know. There was a lot of it that was, that was interesting. There was the whole idea of John Morant going through the beginning of his career without press being there in person. Yeah. And I Haberstroh included that, uh the quote from the old NBPA, uh, uh Michelle Roberts, is that her name? Yeah. yeah. Um, Saying how, if you don't have any questions to ask, you should get out of the locker room because it's a private space and you're invading it, which to a lay person would seem like it makes sense, but also it isn't. You know, no. if you, so I, I, there was a lot in there and I thought it was unfortunate retrospectively because I did not know that a lot of the focus was on that line because I don't care one way or another, whether John Morant called the ref a, oh, I think it's
0: notable of course, but he, he didn't, I'll, I'll, I'll be yeah. honest when I read that I was rooting for it to have been a female ref just to be a funnier story and a mini stupid controversy that would just be like, I, I, in my mind when I saw that, um, not that the official house of trials position is that we want women to be called hoes. Um, but I just, it was, it would have been one of these things where I wanted to open up the app and see what the discourse was because I couldn't even predict where the ball would bounce. So I was, That it was a male ref who got called a hoe was a little bit deflating to me, honestly. Um, But there are these other meta media strains to it, and it portrayed a very sad portrait of the modern NBA media space. I could feel the emptiness. I could feel the sadness within it. None of this was really, I think, reaching the discourse level of people mad at Tom for snitching on John Morant, who is under, I almost said under the gun of the league, under the microscope of the league, uh, given past incidents with guns. Um, But uh, yeah, it it was this portrayal. The Stringer, uh, he was kind of a substitute worker who was an, an older man, a senior citizen who was doing this sort of job that almost doesn't exist anymore. And there's no generation coming up to do it. And then I thought about, you know, what I've been through where there was this weird expectation that people have when a player says something embarrassing in that space or potentially a problem for his team, some people think that you should just sit on it. And sometimes maybe, I mean, there are things that you don't share necessarily. I, I remember I remember the Warriors were at their peak and they were winning so many games. And there was a woman, she's a reporter from China. I believe, and she asked Andre Godal, I can remember it, I remember it like I was there, uh, or like I'm there, whatever that phrase is. I was there. I was in the Barclays locker room, and Andre, because he just likes to fuck around, shrugged his shoulders, and he said, look, I mean, there's nothing you can do other than you can buy some guns, you can go to the gun range, practice a lot, and shoot us and kill us. That's really the only way that you can stop us. I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but that is basically what he said. And I wrote the story as news. It was in like a scrum, you know, but only myself and the woman and the Warriors. Raymond Ritter threw a bit of a shit fit over it. And he was telling me that Andre was mad at me. And then I I talked to Andre and Andre did not care at all. (laughs) He did not care. He was sort of, but it was this whole little, it was this whole firestorm about it and about how you shouldn't say that. Looking back on it, I don't know why it really matters. I I don't know. I I guess there was just, it was a sensitivity thing, but it's not like, I don't know exactly what Andre was doing that was so bad for all of us. Um, But yeah, that's an expectation that some people have is that you should be something of an ambassador when you're a reporter and you well, should protect John Morant from taking a shot that you would have to expect. He probably said that wanting it out there when he said it.
1: I think too, if it were a reporter who was covering them every game, you could make the argument that you could gain the player's trust by holding it. And then mm. that would pay off in the long run. <laughs> this is like the
0: the, this is the rock concert where the the band needs blue m ms this is john Rant's version of that where uh, maybe or (laughs) yeah maybe it's testing him or maybe it's just like uh, so we can come back the next day and show his gun i'm bringing this in the locker room i know you're cool now (laughs) he's in the club all of a sudden
1: I'll, John Morant calls the ref a hoe. He doesn't write about it. The next time he's in, John Morant moves a book out of this bookcase, and the door <laughs> opens up, and John Morant's secret gun strip club is in the back. That now the oh, reporter, yeah, now the reporter gets access to. I, it yeah. it did. It, you were right. It did paint a very sad. To think that after a game, there's basically one reporter there to ask John Morant a question is is a statement in and of itself that the reporter is basically making $100 to cover this game, which I think Haberstro basically outlines in there for five hours of reporting work is is also like kind of sad, I think, on some level. Um, And that the reporter heard John Morant say it was just like, I don't know. I just want to get out of here, man. <laughs> like, And that's basically why he didn't write it. Uh, and I think, I think Show's also point was like, if there was more than one person there, like there's no way if there's three people there that that doesn't get reported. Yeah. It's yeah. also his point to an extent.
0: I would think so. And I think it's more fun when stuff like that gets out there. I like the the pageantry and the circus of the press conferences, and people yeah. being mad about things and calling out the refs. I want the refs to have press conferences. I wish Joey Crawford had had press conferences to explain why he did what he did. Make them characters in the show. But well, you had some yeah. good press conference moments. <laughs> I think I had one. I okay. had one good. I felt <laughs> like. I mean, I had another good one that nobody remembers that isn't online where. I think Mark Jackson was ranting and raving um, about how you're not going to, um, you know, I was trying to remember he said cause distrust in my locker room or tear this locker room apart. It, and it, you know, that will never happen. And he just went on this rant and I asked him just specifically, who is doing that and how are they doing that? And I felt like I had, this is the first time I'd ever asked a good question that just made the Because you had just this expectation that he could just sort of rant and rave without specificity. And then it became this whole, uh, it became this whole thing. Um, but yeah, you know, I want that for other people, Spike. I don't want it for myself. I, I enjoy staying away from the press conferences, um, maybe away from Twitter X too, after my experience and all the, um, all the anger. I believe the guy who sent the email about, uh, about Hinky might've actually been cheering me on for tweeting today. So uh, he might, ah, you know, he's, he's got a lot of takes. I, Did, I
1: didn't, w- one other question. Did Haberstroh, when he was, uh, tweeting out the article, I assume the focus of his tweeting was John Morant said, ho, and nobody reported it. Or I don't know. Was that sort of the way that
0: he was trying to draw people in with it? Y- I would assume, I mean, the story is called the untold story of when John Morant called a referee. uh Oh, (laughs) So well, that's okay. the title. Well, that's then, there you go. That seems pretty clear. I mean, there. I can tell, I, I understand why people would get mad too, because yeah. you know, Tom's a white guy and he's like saying the, you know, John Moran called the referee a hoe. And it is funny. It's just like, you can't, you can't really regard it literally too. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's like literally a hoe. Like, I mean, for who? Yeah, I don't, for I don't think it's literal. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't even say who the referee was. I don't know if it matters as we try to get out. Here. Ray Acosta is okay. the referee. The hoe in question. The hoe um, in question. Yeah. Yeah. The very mm. hoe. Um, yeah, Ray Acosta. Okay. Uh, I think we're good, Spike. I thought that was uh fantastic. Is there anything Thanks. that you would like to plug for us on the way out of here?
1: No. I uh, am honored to be on the podcast. Please subscribe to House of Strauss. Yes. Um and uh, be a paying subscriber to House of Strauss is uh, yeah. the only thing I'm trying to plug is your website. You,
0: you owe it to yourself to hate me for the actual things I say behind the paywall. Yes. Not the things you imagine I say. You owe no. it to yourself to know specifically and accurately why I suck y- you're you to be like, an informed consumer. There's that moment
1: in Private Parts, when, and I'm gonna get the the actual. Have you seen Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie? Yes. Yes. So there's that moment where the where like Howard Stern's getting popular, and the the program director's like something to the effect of, you know, the people that like it are listening 25 minutes a day, but the people who hate him are listening three hours a day. And I think your thing has to be, you know, the people that like Ethan beat only the free post but the people that <laughs> truly hate them pay every month
0: <laughs> i make all the football stuff my free post the people you know they, they they regard me as football ethan the, the uh, free right. subscribers that's what they see me as america's foremost football writer thanks so much spike and hey happy new year to you and happy new year to all of you all right. see ya, see ya. <laughs>